my mental clarity. <laughs> it's funny. It's, a, it's like now I'm slipping into the Joe Biden thing. How's your mental focus? But no, my mental focus is a lot better. I, I know, I know like I'll go to meetings and I'll be like, oh, I know that guy's name. I know that guy's name. I know that guy's name. And right. in early recovery, even though I maybe heard that name 10, 20 times, I didn't remember it. Yeah. Right. So I just have a lot better mental clarity and, and mental uh, horsepower. Spiritual, of course, you know, you, the, the, the fact that I can have a relationship with a God of my own understanding mm-hmm. and that I can feel connected is, you know, it's epic. It's really, um, it gives me a sense of peace and well being that I didn't have before. And, you know, I remember when I first went into the rooms and there was all that talk of God, I slipped back into, you know, earlier interpretations of what that meant from my childhood. And then I got to find out that I get to have, I get to make it whatever way I want it to be. You know, I get to, as I understood him. Hey, sober people and sober adjacent people. Welcome to I Have 12 Questions. I'm Amanda Patton, your host, the leading expert on nothing. However, I am in recovery and I love it so much so that I launched this podcast where we get to talk to people who are trudging the road to happy freaking destiny across all the different ways that people get there. So while this is definitely through the lens of recovery and sobriety, these stories and the themes that we'll be covering are universally human. So love, loss, grief, excitement, parenting, outside issues, purpose, God stuff, whatever. In the words of the great Ted Lasso by way of Walt Whitman, I want to be curious, not judgmental. So like I said, we'll be talking to people in recovery. We're going to be talking to experts and practitioners who help those people along their path in recovery. And we're just really excited to hear people tell their stories and to be inspired by them and to create a community of support for everybody in recovery and people who know and love people who struggle with addiction issues and whatnot. So anyways, we're so glad you're here. And thanks for listening. Hey, listeners, just a quick disclaimer before we get into the interview. These episodes may contain adult language and subject matter that's not appropriate for all audiences. Also, we are not doctors or psychiatrists. So, what we share on these episodes is certainly not to be considered medical or psychological advice, just our own personal experiences, which we hope will be helpful to others on a similar quest. So that's it. And thanks for listening. All right. Hey, hey, Sober Family and our entire listening community. Uh, We have a great show in store today. Our guest is Stephen English. And for those of you who don't know him or who he is, let me just catch you up. He's a well-known and respected coach. He's a trainer, a TEDx speaker. He's a team facilitator and, of course, a person in recovery. That's what we're always here to talk about. Um, He's done executive coaching and team building for big names like Samsung, Home Depot, Black Locust, among others. And he also has shared his personal story of recovery um, out in the world and how that kind of guides him through his life and his career today. And as with all of our guests, he is using his gifts uh, and his story to be of service to other people. And we are very lucky to have him here today. And you can find all of Stephen's work, or a lot of it anyways, at uh, stephenenglish.net. And his videos and TEDx talks and all that fun stuff are out on YouTube all over the place, as well as LinkedIn. So uh, please check that out. And without further ado, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. 
Well, thanks for, thanks for saying yes. It's so, uh, so <laughs> nice. And it's weird to talk to people, you know, when you're watching videos and reading their, their stuff and you kind of feel like you know them and then you actually are, you know, in a conversation. So it's, it's exciting. Yeah. So well, that's I'm great. Gonna, and I, I, I like to share, I like to share my story. So it, it's, yeah. a, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I want to start with a quick icebreaker. Um, what's the yeah. best thing that happened to you this week so far? The best thing that's happened to me this week. Oh boy. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, well, number one, my son turned 19 today. So I have awesome. that, I have his birthday. And then also I found out about some more speaking opportunities. I'm doing, let's see, two speaking two speaking engagements here in May. I know that by the time that this gets published, it might be past May, but I, I, I'm doing that. And then I'm speaking in the middle of June. And now I found out about something in late June, some wow. uh, paid speaking engagement. So I'm really, really excited about that. That's awesome. It sounds like you're getting busier and busier. Where do you live? I live in, uh, in the, I guess you could say the border to Cedar Park. So I live in, in Austin, okay. Okay. Uh, North, North Austin. Mm-hmm. I'm out like Marble Falls. So I'm Austin-ish, but like not really type of deal. Yeah. I'm further out than you. Um, okay. So when did you get sober? That's a great question because, and I think a lot of the listeners will, let's say, identify with this. My sobriety had a lot of starts and stops. I originally ended up in the rooms in 2012 because I had a second DWI charge that when I, when I went and I spoke to my attorney, you know, he was very, uh, let's say very discouraging. He's like, Oh, you know, you're gonna, you know, maybe we'll be able to plea it down to a, a class B misdemeanor, this, this, and that. And I, I got a little, I guess you could say a little courageous or, or a little bit antsy with regard to his advice. And so I, I reached out, I was driving down I-35 and I saw the sign for Betty Blackwell and Betty Blackwell, her, her namesake, I guess like her grandfather was the, the namesake of the Blackwell justice building. So if you've ever been arrested in downtown Austin, you went to the, the Blackwell justice building. Mm-hmm. And I asked her about my case and she gave me one piece of advice. So number one, she couldn't take my case because I already was working with somebody else. But she said, put together a good guy file. And in your good guy file, you're going to have signatures from uh, recovery meetings. You're going to have a letter from a therapist and a letter from somebody upstanding in the community. And so I took that time to start going to uh, AA meetings. And I, I started to have little, little amounts of sobriety, but the main thing was, is that I started to hear the message. So my, my first bona fide sobriety date was August 29th, 2016. So four year, four year gap there. And in that gap, you know, I had my, I had my good guy file. I took it to court. I got the case knocked down to obstruction of a roadway. However, I, it wasn't a strong enough bottom for me to decide to make the decision to get sober. However, August 29th, 2016, that morning I woke up, I had had, uh, two shots of 
uh, tequila and I was already starting to feel a little buzzed and it was 10 in the morning. And I just remember having this moment of clarity of like, what in the hell am I doing? And I, I handed the bottles to my girlfriend and said, Hey, she said, Oh, I'll hold these for safekeeping. I'm like, no, 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 you don't need to hold them for safekeeping. Like these need to go away, you know, give them to somebody, make them go away, uh, poured out the rest of the beer. And so that was my f- official first sobriety date. I went from that August 29th till like October 4th. And then I went to Austin city limits and, you know, of course I'm there with a bunch of normies. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the fact that I'm, you know, in this recovery circle. And so as soon as I start to make these justifications, like, Oh, I've had all this time. I haven't drank. I deserve one beer. And I had that one beer and I learned that day that uh, controlled drinking is never fun and fun drinking is never controlled. <laughs> and that one IPA, you know, I, I went back to my Indian pale ale. I took a sip of it. I was like, God, this tastes like crap, you know, because my, my palate had, had, had shifted mm-hmm. because I wasn't drinking for all that time. And then I, I had another stretch. I went from that October 4th until... I don't know. What was that? December of 2017. So end of December, 2017. And I was watching my girlfriend's dog. She was already on, you know, she had traveled and I was watching the dog staying there at night. And my parents, um, well, my mother and her husband were staying at, at my house. And at that, when they were there for all that time, I, I felt really uncomfortable saying, Hey, I'm going to go to a meeting. So I, I let my program really slack. And then I was going over to this house, my girlfriend's house, and I discovered that bottle of uh, vodka. So she gave away the tequila, but the vodka was still there. And I had my LaCroix. And so I started drinking like less than an ounce and a half of vodka every night for a bunch of nights. And all of a sudden, all those negative thoughts crept back in. I learned like the minimum viable dose of alcohol that doesn't even get you drunk, but impacts your, your mental health. Yeah. And I started to have those same thoughts of, I hate myself. I hate my life, all that. I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that I've, I've had this relapse. So I, I, I reset my sobriety date. So my most recent sobriety date is January 6th, 2018. But, uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot through all of those, um, let's say failed attempts, if you will. Right. And, and honestly, I just have, you know, I just have today, right? Like one day at yeah. a time, as we say. Right. Um, I always just like to hear people's, you know, path and it's usually a very windy circuit. It, like it's very few people just, you know, okay, well, we're yeah. done. Um, and some people do, and that's great. That's wonderful for them. That was definitely not my story. I started trying to get sober in, 2005. My sober date is 2013. Uh, so, and I put together, you know, pieces and bits. And at one point I even had nine months and then I started dating someone and I, it made me uncomfortable and he drank. And I was like, he's like, are you serious? You can't have like one glass of wine with dinner. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I, you know, and Mm. it was the same thing, but I, I wouldn't take it back, I guess. Um, and so I, I love hearing other people's meandering. Um, and the unfortunate thing is that not all of us get to make it back in. And so it's pretty risky, right. right. To keep going out and messing with that. Um, so I feel very fortunate oh, yeah. and I'm sure you do too, that we, that we got to, got to get another, um, shot at it. But what, 
what was your kind of journey, I guess, in active addiction? And obviously we don't have, you know, unlimited amounts of time. So, but I always like to hear how it, how it was for people. Some people out of the gate, it was a nightmare. Other people, it's so Mm -hmm. subtle and insidious. And then, you know, so kind of what was your, what was your story around how it became for you? Well, there were always, looking back on it, there were early signs. Mm -hmm. Uh, In, in high school, I didn't drink very, very often. There were just these times when like a, a friend's parent would go away and then of course we'd have like a little party there and I, I, I could tell like, wow, this, this, this does make me feel pretty darn good. Uh, and, and, but because of the lack of accessibility to it, I really didn't take to it. You know, um, of course I, you know, would, like I said, I wouldn't, I would, I would have a drink at friends' houses and things like that. But it, it really wasn't, it was, I didn't get active in the addiction. And then I went to college, again, the same kind of thing. Um, you know, I joined a fraternity. It was very normalized to, to drink your way through a weekend. And I remember even seeing some of my friends who on Saturday after a night of drinking Friday night, would they would start drinking very, very early. And I didn't do it at that time. So it really, it didn't, it didn't really take hold. And for a little while. And then there was another early warning sign, which was I was at my first job and they had a Halloween party and I went there and, you know, took, took a bunch of shots, drank a bunch of beers. Next thing I know, I'm waking up on the bathroom floor and, you know, a few days later, I'm getting a picture of it from one of my coworkers. Mm. And this is before digital photography. So, you know, I could just imagine if, if people had cell phones, what would have been captured that night? It would have been incredibly embarrassing. So I, I started to see all these early warning signs. It actually wasn't until I was, what was that? It was like 2007. So I took, I took a job at Samsung. Uh, and in January, February of 2007, they sent us all to Korea for five weeks. And there, I, I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a plan for how I was going to live when I got there. I didn't, I didn't have the foresight to think, okay, I need to buy a bicycle when I get there. I need to bring gym clothes. I need to find out where the local, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, whatever kind of social engagement I could, I could create. And so I naturally fell to the, the norm there, which was going out every night. And so you'd go and work all day and then you'd go out. And of course you're on, a, a, a small stipend. And so, you know, you got money for, for food. And so you, you got money to drink and, and I just drank every day. I just drank every single day while I was there. And that was, I, I liken it to pouring gasoline on a pilot light of alcoholism. Yeah. That's, that's the analogy that I think of because, you know, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. I grew up around lots and lots of drinking. It was very normal. I never saw any consequences of it. So it, it, I didn't, I didn't see kind of like what could happen if, Mm -hmm. if I let this thing go wild. And so I came back and I was a daily drinker and from there it just escalated. It just escalated. And, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know how far in depth you want me to go, but, but that's kind of, that's what it was like. That's how it started. Let's put it that way. Right. Okay. 
Okay. No, that's good to know. I always like to kind of see where people are coming from. So in your TEDx talk, um, I know you do tons of talks and events and all that, but there's one called Finding Joy and Disappointing Others, which I thought the title was hysterical and compelling. Of course, I had to watch it. Um, But and I loved it and I learned a lot from it. But I would love to hear you kind of give us the overview of that lesson um, so that we can all apply it to our own lives. Um, and, And there's a lot of there's there's a blurb, you know, that was written in the description of the video, but I want to hear it kind of from your perspective. Um, you know, what yeah. does that mean? Uh, Distill it down for us to where we can, we can yeah. that in. Yeah. Like you said, I tried to make a, a title that would be a little, for lack of a better term, clickbaity, you know, have right? a little bit right. of a, of a grab. And so that's why I, I, I chose that title. So I, I was, Due to family of origin and some of my early childhood experiences, I became a people pleaser and I allowed the desires of others to really guide my choices. And I I found myself not really knowing who I was and the, I I guess the way to, 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 you know, if I had to encapsulate this is rather than me continuing to disappoint myself by not living the life of, you know, my values, my interests, what I really care about, I, I was not disappointing other people because I was disappointing myself. And so the, the idea here is kind of to turn that whole thing around. And in my case, that people pleasing led to a lot of resentment, Yeah, that resentment then led to my drinking and so because I wasn't living in alignment with what I felt was what was meant for me, like why God put me on the planet, I had a lot of stress. I had, you know, you could say it was part of a midlife crisis. It took, it took that much time for me to, to feel that amount of pain. You know, right. the pain pushes until the vision pulls, as they say. Mm-hmm. Michael Beckwith said that. I love that quote. Love that. So I had all this pain and it had to do with me not really living authentically, I had people in my life that were, you know, they, they gave me the icks, right? Like these were people that I didn't like being around, but I did because I was drinking or that I felt like I, I, I had some obligation to them yeah. um, and so forth. And so what I did was obviously once I had some recovery. And this is what I talk about in, in the video and probably people who've been in the rooms before have heard this saying is the good part about sobriety is you get your feelings back. The bad part about sobriety is you get your feelings back. (laughs) So so I had all that. Yeah. So I had that time, right? So I, I, you know, I had that August 29th, 2016. And even though I did have that little slip for, for a few days, I was, I was changing my thinking. during that time. And, and I was starting to feel the feelings that I felt when I was doing the things that were really in my zone of genius. And then I was feeling the feelings when I was doing these things that were just in my zone of excellence or my zone of competency. Mm -hmm. And so I had to make a change. Right. And so that, that's what that whole TEDx is about is, you know, it starts with, with one of my bottoms, which is I got arrested on father's day in, in 2014. And that was, you know, I wish, I wish to say that that was like, I, I had 
woke up that day and and decide, you know, the next day decided I'd never drink, but I, I did. I continued to drink until, like I said, August 29, 2016. Yeah. So really, yeah, this was kind of the, you know, if look, if I look backwards on everything that changed in my life from starting from that, that date in 2014 and then looking, looking forward from that time, what was thematic about it was that I had to get comfortable disappointing other people or else I was just going to continue to disappoint myself. It's huge. That's huge because it's such a conundrum for me anyway, because what you're talking about, I went through the exact and am still going through that process too of like, you know, some people would call it boundaries. Some people, you can call it a lot of different things. And then you find things out in therapy, you find things out in the rooms and working Mm -hmm. steps and all these different things. But Um, it feels selfish, right? And we're told when we come in, you're selfish or self-centered. And this is why you have all these issues and we need to like make some changes, the psychic change or whatever. So to think of telling people no, so that I can be authentic and be true to myself feels very counterintuitive. It's just very confusing. Or for me, it was anyway, intellectually, emotionally, Um, but that's not really what it is, right? It's getting honest with ourselves about who am I, what do I want? What makes me happy type of thing. Um, but it's weird because we don't even realize that we're people pleasing until you start Mm -hmm. getting into some of that stuff and you're like, Oh, okay. You know, when you do things, what's my, yeah. What's my motive? Yeah. Yeah. What's my motivation, right? Like, why am I doing this? Is it for other people or is it for me? And, and I want to ca- caution, you know, cause you said, oh yeah, I still struggle with that. I still struggle with this today. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I jokingly say, you know, to, to people is I, I see that speech is, is almost like a true North and I need to go watch it again and again. Cause I don't live that way all the time. I wish mm-hmm. I, I did, but it's, it's, I, you know, I'm a work in progress. Right. But you have the awareness and you're sharing it with others. Um, and I think too, you know, I'm obviously not a therapist, thank God for that. But, you know, when you, when you look at certain people's personalities or the way we're wired or the way we were raised, and especially in your case, being an engineer, being, being that type of, of thinker, um, maybe it's harder sometimes, right. For some of these emotional or, and, you know, it's, I love the structure of program. I love the structure of some of the things, but some of it gets outside of my comfort zone because it doesn't follow my plan. It doesn't follow the checklist or the timeline that I'm comfortable with. Um, and I, I would assume that an engineering brain <laughs> may have trouble with that sometimes. Right. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. So it's interesting how, you know, I was told early on that intellect can be a, you know, can be your worst enemy sometimes when we're in this thing and that, that it's not alcoholism, it's alcoholism and that a lot of it has to do with our thinking. Um, so I love that you share that because it's a huge, that is a huge perspective shift. Um, so when was the last time you thought about drinking or had a resentment or a trauma pop up, you know, one of those, one of those moments where you are just like, whoa, like limbic hijack or whatever it is. When's the last time that happened? And what did you do? Walk us through how you kind of push through that situation. Yeah, that's tough. I, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, I've had times when 
you know, problems in, in my relationship, um, you know, with, with my girlfriend or, um, my fiance, you know, uh, I think back to those times. So I've had, I would say that the only times I would ever consider, and really it, it never was like, it was never, as we know, we don't pick up with our hand until we've had a lot of steps along the way to pick up with our mind and and very, very quickly. Yeah. Very, very quickly. I became aware of this is something maybe in the past I would drink over, but um, immediately my thinking goes to, I don't need to drink over this. And I know that sounds like really shallow and simple, but that's really kind of my experience of it. I would say when I'm, when I'm feeling anything that is that, you know, restless, irritable, discontent, uh, I mean, the, the, like the first thing that comes to mind when, when you ask me that question would be reaching out to somebody else in the program, especially to help, right? I would just text a, a sponsee and ask them, Hey, you know, how are things going for you? Or yeah. just get out of self. I guess that would be the, my first go-to is, is get out of your own thinking Right. Because right now that thinking isn't serving you. And there's right. a whole bunch of different ways of doing that for sure. Um, you know, the first one, it would be the service, right? Then maybe prayer and meditation. But oftentimes I'll, I'll send a text out to like three, three different sponsees and I'll get, I'll get a text back. And then, then I'm there in that conversation, not so much about that thing that, that maybe popped in my head that made me think, oh gosh, you know, this is really, this is really rough. But, you know, I think that that when we play the tape forward, mm-hmm. meaning what I mean by that is say, okay, I take the drink and then what? Right. If it becomes really, really abundantly clear to us that that's not a, that's not an option. And for me, it's, it's not, it's not my, it's not my go-to. I mean, I would just as soon if I was to, to pick like a guilty pleasure, I, I would I'd just as soon go buy ice cream or something or in, yeah. in, 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 in Netflix binge or something if I'm right. if I'm in some kind of self-pity party. But I, I would say, yeah, the first thing I'll do is is to find somebody to help. And I know that sounds kind of virtue signaling, but honestly, that's what we learned through the program. Yeah. Is yeah. That it, you know, we 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 keep it we keep it by giving it away. Yes. I love that answer because we have to interrupt those old patterns. We have to interrupt that old, um, you know, neural pathway, if you will, that that's just, and the longer you're sober, a lot of times, um, I think it becomes easier and easier. You just, you've, you've won so many times. You've had all these little victories over the years to where now you've reprogrammed or I've reprogrammed my mind well enough to know better. Um, but then sometimes I will say that, just because I don't pick up a drink doesn't mean that maybe I won't try to fall back into some other destructive pattern or worse yet, stuff it, right? Stuff the resentment or the thing, which for me is, yes, get out of self, mm-hmm. reach out, check on somebody else, but also make sure that I'm addressing it either in my nightly or ping my sponsor and say, hey, this, this situation really just upset me. There's obviously something going on there. Um, what's my part? Mm-hmm. What What's that about type of deal? Um, but I love your suggestion because it's something you can do in the moment. You can shoot off a text in two seconds to check on somebody and to just interrupt that, yeah. that self, you know, pity party or whatever is about to happen, um, to turn our, turn our attention to who we can help. Right. Which is what our literature says. 
to do. And, and I, I like the fact that you mentioned, you know, going back and addressing it. I think that having that pause, yeah. you know, it, well, number one, um, just simply pausing, we're going to get better thinking than that immediate, like you said, the limbic brain, the lizard brain, that, that part that, um, you know, immediately shows up. That's, there's no wisdom there, but if we wait some time, cool, calm down, especially being in service, that's going to put us in a much better place to, to really address it. So, yeah, I, I've also found that I, I have learned coping mechanisms. I've learned communication skills in order to address the original problem in the right. first place and not, and not let it fester, not let it turn into a resentment. Right. Yeah. My original sponsor used to have me, um, react on paper or in a draft email that wasn't addressed to anybody, yeah. but yeah, go let that out. I mean, if you really need to let it out, go crazy on a piece of paper and then go back and read it three days later and you read it and three yeah. days later and you're just like, Oh, wow. I am so glad I didn't send that or say that or do that. Um, but it also felt good to get that ugh, ugh, out. You know what I mean? So there's something mm-hmm. about that, but we can't, like you're saying, there's so there are multiple components, right? And the first thing is usually, let me just interrupt my self uh, obsession here at the moment and go help somebody else, which immediately um, makes us feel better. So, um, I have, so this is sort of a two-part question, but why did you decide to go public with your story, your sobriety story? Um, and was there any backlash? You know, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, it's funny. I trying to remember the first time I, I was still employed as an engineer when I started to share my story with let's say LinkedIn. And that's really my, my main jam is LinkedIn, which of course employers are seeing. Same. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I I think to a certain extent I had in the back of my mind, some facts about leaders that I knew who they didn't have a, they didn't have a leg to stand on from a judgment perspective. So, you know, I knew some VPs and things like that had gotten DWIs. I knew a lot of alcoholics in leadership positions and I thought, well, you know, how are they going to judge me? And, and then when I went to do my TEDx, by that point, I was already very well decided that I was going to leave corporate. And Mm -hmm. I saw it as I'll, I'll, I'll say it. It was a kind of a nail in the coffin. I thought, Hey, if this is going to turn them off, then I, I, I kind of want it. I kind of wanted to burn the boats a little bit. Right. And, um, not from the perspective of let me burn everything down because I I'm trying to ruin my life. It was more of, look, I want to, I want to cut off this option of running back to engineering. Like I know I love what I'm doing. I love the coaching. I love the training. I love running workshops. And, and I, and I know that God wouldn't let me feel those great feelings if it weren't really for me. And I, so, so that was, you know, did I have a, did I have a fear about it? Yeah. I had a little bit of a fear, but I, I very quickly move past that. And and the other component of that is I knew that, and I would say this sometimes I say, Hey, 
for whatever judgment I'm getting from sharing this, if I help one person, then it's worth it. Right. That would be another, another side of it is knowing, knowing full well that when there are a lot of sober voices out there that are recovering out loud, mm-hmm. it, it, it normal, not to use the word normalizes it, it lets people know that there is hope. Yeah. So if we're all suffering in silence, if we're all recovering in silence, then that person who, who, who is suffering in, in the disease, they, they, they can't see that there's, there's hope on the other side, unless of course they go to a, you know, a recovery meeting, but then a lot of people like that's, that's like a big leap for them. So if they can hear somebody sharing their experience, strength and hope, and I've, 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 um, I've grappled with, uh, what is it? Is it the 11th tradition? I I always get them in a seventh or 11th. I forget which of it is, but Uh, yeah, like 11th. Yeah. 11 is, you know, maintaining anonymity at the level of press radio and film. I've, I've really had some internal struggles with that. And so now like you'll see if I post on LinkedIn, I'll never label it AA. I'll just say recovery. Right. 12 Um, step or recovery or sobriety. Yeah. 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 Just just to to not, even though. Okay. What was the second part of your question? I'm so sorry. No, the backlash. Yeah. You're addressing it. You're addressing it. Oh yeah. Why did you Yeah. I didn't really, I didn't honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get any backlash. That was the surprising thing. So I guess that's, that's like the key thing is I don't get, I didn't get the backlash. What I would get is sometimes I would get on a call with somebody and I would say, oh, you know, I've got this amount of time in recovery or this much time in sobriety. Some people would say, congratulations. Other people, they'd be dead silent. And that was, to me, a sign that they were probably still suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what I love about that, too, is you're talking about kind of burning the boats a little bit or, or setting your life up in a way that would, would clear the path for what you were really meant to be doing, which goes back to being honest with yourself and being in alignment with yourself and, and stop being a people pleaser and start start, you know, being in alignment, being honest, being to thine own self, be true. It says it on, you know, so I think I love how that, how that ties back. And my experience was the same of, um, people are like, Oh, wow, that's great. Or, you know, this, that, or the other. But a lot of times it was when people needed help, they would reach out, you know, separate, like on a text or on a message on LinkedIn, or they would say, you know, Oh yeah, my dad's been in recovery for 24 years, you know? And so there was that side of it too. But, um, and I'm very careful with other people's anonymity. Obviously that's huge, huge. You never, ever, ever Mm -hmm. break anyone's anonymity. I am 100% down with that, but I can talk about my own experience, strength and hope and my story Mm -hmm. is is my story. Um, as long as I'm careful not to, so I understand what you're talking about the tradition because I've struggled with that and, you know, I've gotten some, some sideways stares from people in AA for sure. Um, and different, different groups, but there's recovery dorma, there's refuge recovery, there's she recovers. There's so many communities now of support. And to your point, if you're suffering in silence and you don't know where to go, and then you realize there's this whole secret society of people just like you who are ready and willing and able to like welcome you in with open arms, you know, and show you how they got sober. And, um, and there's a million yeah. ways to do it, right? It's not this, this way is going to work for everybody. There's a lot of different approaches. So thank you for having the courage to share your story out with the world. Um, I really applaud you for that. I really do. 
Um, okay. Likewise. Thank you. So my next question is, so in your coaching, I looked, I've looked at, I've, I've heard a lot of what you've said, videos you've put out, things you've written, and also your website in terms of the workshops that you do, the team building, uh, cohesive, you know, environments and this kind of thing. Um, and you work with a lot of people who are, who are introverted. Um, and that's probably a pretty hard thing. I always thought I was an extrovert. Um, but I, but I'm really not, I, I learned how to fake being a good extrovert because life sort of required it of me. Um, so my question to you is how do you coach or sponsor or lead, uh, people in recovery or in the workplace? Because in the recovery community, there's a lot of joining and talking to strangers and opening up and, you know, things that are extremely uncomfortable for an introvert. And in the workplace as well, if you've got an introverted person who now is in a leadership position, they've got to stand up and talk in front of people. They've got to assert their, you know, opinion at a board meeting, let's say, um, how do you coach people to kind of stay true to themselves and their introversion, but also do what they need to do to be successful in recovery or at work? Yeah. There's a lot of different aspects to that question. And I'll, I'll just pick one aspect, which is the, the key I believe for introverts is energy management. So energy, energy management, what do I mean by energy management in social situations, social situations tend to be very draining. And I think it was Simon Sinek who said this is, you know, introvert wakes up every morning with five matches and each social interaction is like burning one match. Whereas an extrovert, they get a match every time they're involved in a a social interaction. So energy management is really, really important. The other factor that I think is super, super important for introverts is to lean into their superpower of preparation. Introverts, you know, if you tell them, hey, we're going to have this meeting and we're going to talk about this, this, and this, they naturally will start to prepare. Yes. And what what I found, so let's just pick the recovery component, right? Mm -hmm. So if when I'm working with a sponsee who is introverted, I will make sure to give them clarity on what it is that we're going to be talking about, what it is that they'll need to prepare for yeah. our next conversation. Mm-hmm. So my sponsor gave me this, this giant stack of tools to use. So I was <laughs> blessed. I mean, he's such a great, great sponsor. You know, I, I don't just have to like give a 12 and 12 to a sponsor and say, Hey, you know, read, read step one before our next meeting. I have worksheets. I have all this collateral. And so I share that with them ahead of time Yeah. so that that introvert can be prepared because another thing that introverts do not like is being put on the spot. They don't like being, so for example, improvisational speaking, which is what we do so much at meetings. Mm-hmm. That's to, to them very, very scary. So I, I, I try to help them pre-prepare <laughs> for whatever the, it is in the conversation. And the same thing goes with the coaching, right? I don't um, you know, I, I don't try to spring things on them in, in the middle of the coaching call. I, you know, if I, if there is something that we want to talk about ahead of time, I might share some information with them prior to that call Yeah. that. And then also I think that 
once an introvert feels very, very comfortable with another person, you know, for example, my, my best friends and INTJ, I have no problem keeping him talking. Right. Yeah. But I think it's, I think, yeah, I think it's those high stakes, uh, social environments that are, are, are particularly frightening for introverts. And so, yeah, I, the, the two factors. So one managing the energy, which can be done by, you know, if you're an introvert and you're going to a networking event, take breaks, get out of the room, you know, go sit down, uh, relax for a few minutes before you go back into the conversation. And then the preparation, you know, that, that may be going into the networking situation. It might be to have, you know, five icebreaker questions that you just use at every, every new conversation, mm-hmm. or it might be to, if you're, if you went there to talk to a specific person doing some due diligence, So, you know, a little bit about them so that you can hook into something that you know that they're interested in, in order to start a conversation. Right. But those would be just a couple of thoughts with regard to, you know, coaching introverts and then also working with introverts in recovery. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Energy management. You would never, I would never put those two together. I would never even think of that as part of the thing. But as we were talking before we started the, the interview, you know, um, work events and traveling for work was one of the biggest, um, gotchas for me, not only being sober because there's a lot of drinking going on at those things. Um, but also, and really late night dinners, not a lot of sleep. It's hard to get to a meeting. It's kind of like all of my scaffolding and my security is removed when I travel for work and it is scary. And then you add on top of that social situations, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, and I, that is a nightmare mm. to me. I would rather do anything Absolutely. than be around people for that long. So I would, and before I just push through, push, 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 and I would get home and I would need four days on the couch of just staring at a wall. You know, I mean, I just, I, it just depletes me completely. Not that I didn't enjoy parts of it. Not that I didn't meet cool people and learn new things, but man, I was depleted. I was like, what's wrong with me? Am I antisocial? Do I just not like people? What's my deal? Um, but now I've learned over time, you know, I've got my club soda and lime in hand. I know how long I can stay. I'll go back up to my room and do a 15 minute meditation. I'll go take a walk. And also you don't have to be there all the time for all the things, right? You can, so, and then what you're talking about, that energy management of, of also knowing the signs when you're feeling it kind of, you can feel it when it's happening, right? Mm -hmm. And just go take a break. You know, it's not the end of the world. Um, because I don't want to be in a situation where I'm feeling like that and then, and then think, oh, a drink would make this better, or I would feel calmer or more social if I were drinking right now. Right. I don't, I don't want to be away from my home base and and get myself in that situation. So I love the fact that you talk about energy management because again, it's a boundary. It's a self-care thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and when an introvert gets, um, depleted, that's when, you know, some of these things like people start to see their facial expression and they're like, oh, they're very aloof or they, they're very standoffish or right. they, um, they're not interested. It's not that they're not interested. They're just tired. They're freaking so, out. Yeah. I like the, they're exhausted. Yeah. They're just tired of hanging. Yeah. They're just, they're just, uh, flat out busted. And, and you know, you mentioned leaving early. That's another thing. I, 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 when I talk to introverts about networking events is you don't need to be there the whole time. Yeah. Show up, you know, make a round or two get a couple of names, make a, few, a couple of connections and then get out. Yes, absolutely. 
it's just, it's very, it's very helpful though, to hear it from your perspective. Cause I love that. Cause you obviously have to adjust your management style, coaching style, sponsor style based on who you're working with. And I've had sponsees yeah. that I've sent these massive workbooks to and the entire outline for all 12 steps and how we're going to do it. And they were like a deer in headlights. It was too much information. My other type A introverted type of people loved it. They felt so calm and peaceful, right? right? So it depends on who you're talking to. Um, mm -hmm. So in your coaching business, you talk about building cohesive teams through trust and resolving conflict, um, among yeah. many other things. But that very much aligns to the skills that we learn in recovery in terms of dealing with life on life's terms, you know, cleaning up our messes, all this fun stuff. How does your sobriety and practice your pr practicing your program um, serve you, you know, show up in your professional life? <sighs> Well, I'll say this much about it is that because of the honesty, you know, so in, in this, in this program, right? Like one of the most important pieces of the program is that honesty yeah. because of that honesty, I think it makes it easier for me to interact with groups because they, they know I'm being real. They know that I'm sharing my real story and I'm also very, very vulnerable and, and, um, accessible to them. And, and, and I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking back to, you know, a time when I, for example, building trust, I was, I was working with a group and one of the, the trust exercises was to, to talk about one of your challenges that you had growing up. Mm -hmm. And so I was pretty open about my challenges growing up. And then all of a sudden it, it, it was, <laughs> it got so heavy that I, I didn't even really know as a facilitator, I was kind of like, where do I go with this? Like people started sharing these, these stories that they had from their childhood that, you know, were really, um, I, I could sense that it was traumatic to them Yeah. that what happened to them. And, but at the same time, like the, the fact that these people shared these stories, there was just so much empathy in the room for, for people, you know, who were, maybe in the past had had some kind of conflict with the other person or, or maybe looked at them a certain way. So as soon as I started to get honest and very authentic, I think it created an opening for people. Yeah. And it was really funny too, because later on I got a, a let's say some feedback that the question I asked was, what was your most traumatic childhood experience? And I was like, no, that's not what I asked. It was literally, what was the challenge? You know, what was the challenge that you faced growing up? Uh, but people went there. They went there. They went to that place. And and as a facilitator, it was, it was all I could do is thank them. Like, all yeah. I could do is thank you for your strength. You know, thank you for your honesty. You know, I know that what you said is, is, is powerful, not just for you, but for other people. Um, so I would, I would say that's one thing that, you know, from the program, that honesty, openness, and willingness, I bring that to the facilitation. You know, there's, it's what you see is what you get. I'm not holding anything back. I don't gatekeep. I'm, I'm sharing with you everything and, and in service, right? And, and also it's just easier for me to keep track because I don't have to keep track of any lies. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 
and being true to yourself. And, and that is, that is a form of service, um, to other people. And it's interesting how people change the, even the wording of the question, right. Of how they remember it. But it's, it's interesting how we all go back to that core wounding sometimes, right. There's that one, maybe that one thing that sticks out from childhood that you remember, like it was yesterday and how everybody has that. And it's easy to like, not yeah. like someone or whatever from a distance when you don't really know them, but then that empathy of like, Oh wow. You know, um, no, I love that. I love that. Cause it can be scary. It can be scary to be your real self. Um, and, but it's very liberating at the same time. Um, it is. so it how is. has your, speaking of childhoods, how has your parenting, um, experience changed since you got sober? Hmm. How's my parenting experience? You know, it's very humbling because I, I, I never kept this from my kids. I never, there was never a concerted effort to, to hide anything about my, my recovery or my drinking. Uh, you know, fortunately knock on wood, you know, my, my kids weren't, let's say weren't as impacted by it as I was afraid that I had impacted them. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. like I, I was really afraid that, boy, I, I screwed these two guys up, you know? Yeah. And, and that wasn't true. I think what, what has impacted my parenting is that I, I now, because I recover out loud, because I am growing in front of their eyes, you know, mm -hmm. I, I went through my midlife and I changed my career. I think they, they have a lot of hope around the opportunity for us to change. Like they know that whatever it is about your life, you can change it, it that, that we're not limited. We're not, we're not stuck. Um, if anything, I would hope that they've adopted a bit of a growth mindset from mm -hmm. seeing what has happened uh, for, for me in terms of like me as a parent, again, I'm going to go back to that honesty. You know, I, um, I, I don't hesitate nearly as much to share with my kids. Now, of course it's been a moving target <laughs> since I've, I've been sober for so long and my kids are getting older. Like I got right. a 19 year old and a 16 year old. So right. I really can say more and more to them. Yes. But I, I yeah, I, I would say the biggest thing is that they, they know that you can change and that, mm -hmm. um, you know, nothing is, is kind of set in stone. I love that. That's an incredible gift to yourself and to them. Um, what is the hardest part of staying sober for you? If there is one, <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's, that's a, that's a real tough question. What is the hardest part of staying sober? Uh, you know, there's times when I, um, I'm slacking on my program mm -hmm. and I can, I can sense it in, mm -hmm not necessarily like the dry drunk per se, but, um, I can sense that I'm, I'm not always on the beam. I'm not, I'm not in that space of equanimity. I'm feeling a little irritable. I'm feeling a little bit dis discontent. And so I guess the hardest thing for me sometimes is to just get back into, like, I hadn't gone, I hadn't had a meeting in a couple of weeks. And then I went, um, earlier this week, I went on Tuesday and yeah, like, I guess it's, sometimes it's tough for me to go from being super gung ho, 
chairing meetings, you know, cause sometimes I'd get in there and like, nope, we didn't have a chair. So I would chair the meeting. Right. Uh, so sometimes it's hard for me to kind of get back in the swing of things, but honestly, yeah, there's really not, there's really, you know, from the, from the perspective of staying sober, I don't find it at this point in the game, very, very difficult, but I am aware that my addictions in the parking lot doing pushups. And I know right. we hear that in the rooms, but I, I know that I, I need to maintain my own program as, as that insurance policy. Is it what's tough about it? I guess. So, yeah. Sometimes just getting getting back into the swing of things with getting back to meetings and being of service. Yeah. If, if anything is tough about it. I understand that completely. And I think, um, when I, and I should clarify this better, but when I say sobriety, I am always talking about physical sobriety, obviously, and, and emotional sobriety, because there is no point for me to be sober if I am not working on my emotional sobriety, because I will not be happy, joyous. I will not be happy. I won't feel good right. or peaceful or whatever. And so I understand what you're saying. And I, I, um, I still have a tendency sometimes to resist what I know is good for me. Um, and so yeah. I know I need to write about this thing. It's been, it's been stuck in the back of my mind for a week and I'm, it's a little resentment that I'm chewing on and it's kind of juicy and I'm not ready to let it go. I know I need to write about it. I know I need to share about it, talk to my spot, but I, but sometimes I just don't, you know, and I know intellectually what I need to be doing. So for me, those are the types of like emotional sobriety things or complacency, the longer you're sober, you know, it's just, yeah. um, but no, I, I, I love that of that understanding of, because I don't know about you, but if I, if I'm, if I'm doing things that are making my meeting schedule harder and I go a while without it, I can feel my thinking start to change. I can feel my reactions. I don't know. I just feel a little off, like you were saying. And then I go to a meeting and I walk out of there like skipping, I'm like, I feel amazing. Those are my people. I'm so lucky. Like, it's just, but why did I? (laughs) Yeah. Why did I wait? The thing. Yeah. It's, it's, um, but I love, I love that you're honest about that. Um, what's your favorite part about this kind of lifestyle? Um, other than being healthy, um, other than, (laughs) yeah, not, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm right now I'm, uh, getting over a, a, a small cold slash whatever it is, virus. I don't know what the hell it is, but generally speaking, I, I enjoy very, very good health as a result of not drinking. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, first and foremost, so from physical, emotional, the, the other thing I, I love is that I don't have all this drama in my life. Like I used to, like I yeah. had so much drama that came about from either what I did while I was drunk or when I, when I woke up and I was, you know, had all that anxiety and I had all these, these bad feelings about myself and the, in the depression, I would, I would do, I would act out. I would, I would make, I would make drama in my world. So Mm -hmm. from an emotional standpoint, mental, my, my mental clarity. <laughs> it's funny. It's, a, it's like now I'm slipping into the Joe Biden thing. How's your mental focus? But no, my mental focus is a lot better. I, I know, I know like I'll go to meetings and I'll be like, Oh, I know that guy's name. I know that guy's name. I know that guy's name. And right. in early recovery, even though I maybe heard that name 10, 20 times, I didn't remember it. Yeah. Right? So I just have a lot better mental clarity and, and mental uh, horsepower 
spiritual, of course, you know, you, the, the, the fact that I can have a relationship with a God of my own understanding Mm -hmm. and that I can feel connected is, you know, it's epic. It's really, um, it gives me a sense of peace and well-being that I didn't have before. And, you know, I remember when I first went into the rooms and there was all that talk of God, I slipped back into, you know, earlier interpretations of what that meant from my childhood. And then I got to find out that I get to have, I get to make it whatever way I want it to be. You know, yes. I get to, as I understood him. So that, that's been really epic. So I, w- I would say, yeah, those are just some of the, the many, many, many gifts of sobriety on top of, you know, I was, I was pretty broke, uh, when I was drinking and, and it wasn't just because of the cost of the actual drink. It was the things that I bought because I, I felt like I had a hole inside of me. So I had to go buy these things, even though it never really solved the real problem, which was me. Right. Um, yeah, the list goes on and on. Yeah, that's an expensive lifestyle. All the attorneys, in my case, I was like, whoa, this is getting way more oh, yeah. than a margarita, you know? <laughs> um, Heck yeah, yeah. I re- yeah. Which we've heard in the rooms many times in, in other literature or whatever about how, you know, the sponsee calls the sponsor after five or six months, just like, oh, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm so bored. And, you know, it's like, you're just, this is serenity. This is normal life. Yeah. But you're so used to that chaos, you know, that constant chaos and, the dishonesty and the, just all the things that go with that lifestyle that we, that we were, that I was in. Um, and then that, that serenity, that peace can feel like boredom sometimes, right? It, it, it's very disorienting at first. Um, cause you're waiting for the shoe to drop. You're waiting for the next bad thing to come, but you realize, Oh, I was the one generating the bad yeah. things. Yeah. So, um, that's right. No, I love that. And the freedom and the spaciousness of, of a God of your own understanding and, and being able to ease into that and, and unlearn what you learned as a kid, maybe if it's toxic or, or dangerous for your psyche and to, to, to relearn or, you know, make up what you need to. Um, so I love, I love those points. That's really, that's really good. Okay. Final question. So I was looking at your, um, recent event that you've started, it looks like a series where it's about mental toughness. Um, and it's it's essentially how to stop Mm self-sabotaging, yourself. what, um, can you give us just like a highlight or a a nugget, drop a nugget of wisdom on us? Yeah. So this, this whole mental fitness program, is really about making your mind into your best friend. And let's face it, most of us, what we say to ourselves about ourselves is is generally pretty negative. Uh, the The statistics on it is that 75% of our thoughts are negative. We hear the word no 86,000 times between zero and 18. Our brains have a negative bias. A lot of it is survival-based. We have a very old operating system running in very old hardware, but we can upgrade the operating system. And so what this mental fitness program is, is a new operating system, a new way of handling stressors such that you can tap into your innate wisdom. And what that really looks like is understanding how you self-sabotage. So first and foremost, until you can make the inventory, Right. Then you really can't. Yeah. So number one, you, you're not even aware of it. 
right? right? So, so the first step in this positive intelligence program, this mental fitness program is to understand how do I self-sabotage? And so that comes about through an assessment that assessment, because of the way that it's been crafted and the language that it uses, it helps us understand what's happening at the subconscious. So, you know, a great quote from Carl Jung is, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our life and we will call it fate. Mm. So first and foremost, let's understand what our subconscious programs are that are running. And those are our saboteurs. There's, there's one master saboteur, that's our judge. Mm -hmm. And then there's nine accomplice saboteurs. So this program, I didn't create it. It's, it's, it's part of my coaching offering, but it's a coaching program that, like I mentioned it first and foremost, you learn about how you self-sabotage. Then you learn a way to tap into your innate wisdom through a mindfulness technique. And what they found was that when people are ruminating, when people are having these negative emotions, when people are thinking these negative thoughts, that's this part of the brain called the default mode network. However, there's this other part of the brain called the task positive network, where all of those other positive emotions, where our innate wisdom lives. And so we can activate that by using a sensory-based mindfulness practice. It could be something as simple as rubbing two fingers together and feeling the ridges of the fingers. So as soon as I'm doing that, now I'm firing up the task-positive network in my brain. And that, by, by firing that part of the brain up, I can tap into various pieces of my wisdom. That could be empathy, the ability to explore, understand a situation, have curiosity, navigate. So understand like, where is my real destination that I want to be and and then work backwards and, and innovate, you know, another one of the, the, these sage or wisdom based powers is to innovate. And, and that, that's such a better place to be than to be stuck in those negative thoughts associated with your saboteurs. So that, that's what that whole thing is. I, it's, I, I don't do it service in, in yeah. four minutes, but I would encourage anybody. Yeah. I would encourage anybody who's, who's at all curious about it to reach out, you know, go to my webpage, um, connect with me on LinkedIn and, and I'd be happy to tell them more about it and send over the free assessment That is to help them find out how they're, how they're so self Cause I love find out how they self sabotage anything neuroscience or, or anything to do with, with that. And I've always, I'm very pragmatic and every, I don't want to hang out in the problem. I, I really want to be solution focused, but again, sometimes if it's emotional or it's old programming or it's running in my subconscious and I'm not even aware of it, how could I ever address it? How can I redirect if I'm not yeah. aware of that? I'm even doing that, which is kind of what you're talking about. So Okay. That's great to know. Cause I, I was very curious about, um, about that. Well, I, that's all I, that's all the questions I have for you. We're right at an hour, which is perfect timing. You are delightful and full of so much wisdom. And I am Thank just you. so grateful and lucky that you shared with us today. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Amanda. It was really, really great to connect with you on this. And I I know where this, you know, your audience is, is these are people that I definitely want to impact through sharing my story. And I I really do hope that 
something that I shared today is of use to them to, to help them maintain or create that sobriety in their life. Absolutely. Thank you.